2: Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the live show, everybody, Um, which we are doing. We've restarted. We're doing every Wednesday at five o'clock. Not the last two weeks because summer, things getting in the way, various problems. It's a tricky time. Obviously, the glorious weather as well. Absolutely blessed with that. Although we are actually having a very nice day today, which is a shame, because obviously we had the show today. So I'm going to try try and get some. I hope you also, it's sunny where you are, because that is essentially the end of the summer. Um, What we're going to talk about today is the latest descent into the sewer by our ruling party, the Conservative Party. Now, they are in a desperate, desperate state. Their polling is calamitous. Uh, We'll talk about that later after I've spoken to my two guests. Now, what what they're doing, the Tory, is quite clearly, in terms of their zealous and bigoted and increasingly deranged focus on migrants and refugees and an onslaught against our human rights, collectively, I should say, is is a sign of desperation. Um, An age-old, I suppose, uh, tactic by uh, administrations, governments, regimes in desperate uh, circumstances is to deploy fear, to uh, deflect growing popular anger away from powerful targets to vulnerable minorities who are scapegoated for the ills in society. Now, the Tories have deliberately stoked up a particular panic about the arrival of migrants and refugees on small boats. Um, now, this is interesting because we have fewer asylum claims in the beginning of the century, uh, but more people arriving on small boats because of the closure of safe and legal routes. The Tories have really put themselves in a terrible situation, I would say. I'm not sure, you know, as master strategists, which in the past they have been. That power's clearly waned because what they've done is they've deliberately inflamed the idea of the small boats. They've started this kind of their campaign of stop the boats, stop the boats. That's not going to happen. In no way under this government, doesn't matter what they're going to do. These small boats are always going to arrive. So, what they've done is inflame a problem they are, or, or, or inflame the idea of a problem, inflame the idea of a crisis which they're not able to themselves solve. So they really have put themselves. In a disastrous position, but that of course there are consequences. There are consequences in terms of people fleeing often desperate circumstances and the way they're treated, um, and we can see that at the moment um, being placed in this barge with um, less living space than a parking uh, lot, um, and we can see the Rwanda scheme. We can see the desperate way that, or the 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 horrendous way that many migrants and refugees are being treated. The the way that. Racists on the streets are emboldened by the sorts of rhetoric we hear from the government and from the media. So, obviously, big consequences that we need to discuss. But it's worth just unpicking exactly what they're doing and also the myths, because they're using the bully pulpit of government and the media to propagate a series of myths and outright lies, which we are going to dispel. Now, um, before I bring in my guests, as ever, if you're watching live, do you click? Um, on the link, uh, on the YouTube link to talk, to, so we can have a chat. You can put super chats to our guest. I will thank everyone at the end. Um, and also, um, you can support the channel that way. You can support some patreon.com forward slash That's how you keep the show on the road. And um, glad to say that our content is reaching a huge number of people on YouTube 1.5 to 2 million hits a month on Facebook, similar. Also on the podcast. On Instagram, hundreds of thousands of views. So we are reaching a very, very large number of people. That's all thanks to you. You keep the show on the road. Um, and we wouldn't be able to reach such a huge number of people without your active support. So do keep supporting us if you can. Now, I'm going to bring in straight away uh, Layla Zadet, who is the executive director of Rainbow Migration, who do absolutely brilliant work. Do look up Rainbow Migration and support them um, if you can. Hey, Leila, how are you doing? Hi, Owen. I'm well. Thanks for having me. Great to see you. Right. There might be a slight delay here, but we're going to persevere. What I'm going to do is just play a quick um, uh, clip from the Today programme. And this is a government minister uh, responding uh, to uh, Lee Anderson, who is the deputy chair of the Conservative Party, Telling migrants to F off back to France. This is I've
0: listened. You're being careful with your language this morning. The Conservative Deputy Chairman Lee Anderson has said to the Daily Express of these migrants if they don't like barges then they should F off back to France. Is that the Conservatives' policy? Well, Lee is expressing in, uh, in salty terms, I think something that people uh, well understand, which is that the British people have warm hearts, but we also want to have a secure front door. And it is not right that people who behave illegally and incidentally it has been illegal to arrive in this way for 50 years or so, to jump the queue compared to those who have played by the rules and should done they, the right thing. Should things. they air Force back to France, as he suggests? Well, you suggest? As I say, Lee has expressed himself in his own way, okay. but the central, but point, the that he's making, is the central point he's making is not this, unreasonable. Many yeah. people listening don't know you well. You've become Justice Secretary relatively recently, replacing Dominic Raab. Now, you said a few years ago that you believed that Britain was a, quote, tolerant, outward-facing Nation, Yeah. And you denounce people using rhetoric you didn't like as um, an excuse for ugly bigotry. I thought we'd left long behind. Do you think telling people to F off back to France, who might have genuine claims to be asylum seekers, who might have escaped war and persecution, do you think that is the reflection? of a tolerant, outward-facing nation? Uh, I think that, look, this is absolutely fine. I have no difficulty with that. It's not bigotry at all. This country, let's we forget, has offered its home to 400,000 people since 2015. So Ukrainians, people from Hong Kong, which I have in my own constituency uh, in Cheltenham, eh, Afghans, we are an open and warm and outward-facing country. But equally, we're a country that believes in fairness and playing by the rules. And those who don't play by the rules, who don't take advantage of those opportunities we provide and try to jump the queue, rightly cause indignation. And I think Lee was uh, expressing that indignation in his own way, but there was nothing unreasonable in principle about what he was saying.
2: Leila, I just want your response firstly to a government minister defending the, calling it salty, uh, the way that the deputy chairman of the Conservative Party told migrants and refugees to F off back to France.
3: I've heard this a few times now and even just as you replayed it now, I took a sharp intake of breath. Because that language is the kind of words that I grew up with in this country, being told to go back to where you came from. And it's it's what this language does is it makes a lot of us, whether we're people of color or like me, for example, I grew up as part of a refugee family in this country, be told that we're not welcome. And I think this government's actually got it wrong because my experience is most people welcome refugees. They're right that thousands of people opened up their homes to welcome Ukrainians and most people want to help. So it's really unhelpful that this government is using rhetoric like that.
2: Um, In terms of he talks about jumping the queue, I'm just interested in what you think about this idea that those arriving in small boats are those jumping the queue ahead of those with so-called legitimate claims. That's what he says
3: well there is no orderly queue so to speak of um people take dangerous journeys to this country because they have no other option nobody does this because they think it's the best way or the, or that because they willingly want to take risks with their lives the fact is that outside of the ukraine scheme it's very difficult to get here through a safe route. And the reason why people are taking boats is because successive governments have made it harder and harder to get to the UK. And every time they close a route, people are forced into more dangerous alternatives. And what the latest measures will do is not stop people coming by boat, but find them, they will find other, even more dangerous ways to get here.
2: I mean, when we're talking, I mean, it's quite interesting, obviously the focus on those arriving on small boats. Um, and Lee Anderson responded yesterday, uh, defending his comments, by describing them as fit young men arriving. That's the way it's being portrayed, basically, as opposed to refugees from other demographics. But what was your response to his him coming out swinging in that way?
3: I mean, I think it's unfortunate that when you feel something that really hurts, that you get somebody defending their statement. And the fact is that, you know, very small numbers of refugees globally actually come to this country. And most of us welcome refugees and this government is out of sentiment with that. And they need to be tapping into what the public actually feels, which is helping people to rebuild their lives in this country.
2: I mean, when we're talking about those who arrive here, I mean, I went to Calais um, a few years ago when there was the camp there, and I spoke to refugees there. And it was very striking that those arriving here, they largely spoke English. So those from former French colonies tended to go to France. And those, so I mean, just, I'm just interested in because when, you know, the vast majority of refugees, around 70% go to their neighboring countries, the vast majority, well, the, a large majority of displaced people stay in their own country. Uh, those who become refugees and leave their country, the 70% are in labouring countries which tend to be poor. Most um, countries hold, hosting refugees are poor or, or middle income countries. But is, is that right? The people coming here tend to be disproportionately those some sort of they used to be in a British colony, for example.
3: It is true that a lot of people who seek asylum in the UK have connections to this country. I can give the example of my own family. My mum and dad were here as students and then they went back to Iran when they, you know, finished their studies and it was time for them to go back. They they there they faced persecution there and they had to leave for their own safety and the UK was the obvious place for them to come. They already spoke English. They knew the systems here. They had friends here. My dad had a brother here. So it is true that there's a lot of historical connections, and we work at Rainbow Migration with LGBTQI plus people who are seeking asylum, and certainly a lot of people that we work with do come from Commonwealth countries where they have had laws imposed by the former British colonial power that criminalises same sex relations,
2: Um, which is very interesting. (laughs) Me. Oh, is that that's a hold on one second? I think it was a slight echo there. Um yeah, I mean it's, it's very interesting you mentioned that because so many of these former colonies, African and elsewhere, have Victorian-era um um homophobic pieces of legislation imposed by the British um, Empire, and then people are fleeing that homophobia to um at the, the former colonizer, I suppose. I'm just interested as well. I mean, the Rwanda, so just talking about Rwanda at the moment, the focus on on um, deporting people of any background and circumstance it's very interesting because the polling suggests that if you ask people regardless of circumstance regardless of what persecution you've suffered from should there be a blanket deportation to Rwanda there isn't public support for that is there but I'm just interested in what you think about this idea of Rwanda that whole so-called scheme being used as a deterrence that's the that's the argument being used by its defenders.
3: Well, I think the Rwanda scheme or the latest outed plan about sending people to Ascension Island really go against our human values of being kind and compassionate. And just imagine that you've gone somewhere, in this case to the UK, frightened for your life. And all you want to do is build a future for yourself where you have hope and where you can be safe, only to be told you're going to be sent to somewhere thousands of miles away that you've never heard of. It's not right for anyone at all. And for LGBT plus people, it's particularly scary because even on the Foreign Office website, it does recognise that there are risks to LGBT plus people in Rwanda. And yet we've raised this with the government, but they are determined to press ahead regardless.
2: Can I ask you just a couple of other questions? Can I ask you, just could you give some examples of stories of the sorts of refugees that you work with and the sorts of experiences that they've had?
3: Yeah, we worked with one person called Adams, who's a bisexual man from Ghana. Um, he and his partner were caught together in, in Ghana and he fled to the UK. He actually came here on a, on a valid visa in his case. Um, but when he got here, he found out that his partner had been killed. His asylum claim was rejected because the government didn't believe that he was bisexual. With our support, we managed to get him his leave to remain here eventually. And he's now rebuilding his life. But he's still coming over, not overcoming not only the trauma that he went through in his country of origin, but the fact that in this country he was locked away. He was put inside a detention center, and he's still reliving the damage that that did, that during that time when his freedom was taken away, taken from him, and he was locked up.
2: Just finally, what what can people do? I mean, people might be hearing these, you know. I think just from a general political perspective, it's clear the Conservatives feel they're in a desperate place politically and electorally. They're throwing everything at this because they think they can mobilise their base um, on the issue of fear about migrants and and refugees. What's your kind of suggestion for people who are kind of feeling frustrated? What can people do... um, you know, I know there are people who taking in my, my brother taking in Ukrainian refugees. So you, you mentioned those examples, but there is a scheme there in place. But what's the sorts of general things people you're asking people to do?
3: I would encourage people to write to their MPs of any political party because they are there to represent us, and they do listen. You might remember when this when the scheme came in in 2015 to help settle refugees from the Syria region in this country. That was in response to widespread popular support. So people who support refugees, we all need to make our voices louder and clearer and better known to our representatives in Parliament. Uh, and I am from Rainbow Migration, so I would also suggest that people can sign up to our mailing list where we do um, tell people when there are particular campaign actions that they can take.
2: Great stuff. I really, really appreciate it, by the way, Layla, just uh, you joining us and, and talking about it. Um, and... Huge support for everything Rainbow Migration is doing. I hope people look them up and support you in 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 lots of in, in, in any way they can. But really, really appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you.
2: Great stuff there from Layla. It's so important that we support people on the front line who are doing everything they can to support refugees and migrants. Layla herself from a refugee background, as she says. Now um, we're going to talk more about um, in terms of the legal perspective on um, what. The government are doing um, in terms government uh, refugees and migrants, but also the European Court of Human Rights, which they're talking about leaving. Let's bring in June Pang from Liberty, the human rights organisation, who do brilliant work defending people's civil rights, um, which are obviously under attack by the conservative um, government. Um, June, great to speak to you. How are you doing?
4: Good, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me on.
2: It's a big honor. So, yeah, we can see, you know, Tories could campaign to leave European Human Rights Treaty if Rwanda flights blocked. First, all, I mean, just just explain kind of quickly what, you know, as best you can. When we talk about this treaty, what are we talking about? What are the rights it enshrines? Where did it come from? How did we end up signed up to it?
4: Absolutely. So the European Convention on Human Rights Uh, was actually, is a decades old human rights instrument that was, um, it's actually originated from an idea of Winston Churchill. And it was drafted in large part by British lawyers after World War II to to prevent the atrocities that were committed from ever happening again. And it's the key human rights instrument of uh, what's called the Council of Europe, Um, Importantly, the Council of Europe is different to the European Union and um, it basically (laughs) enshrines uh, all of the protections that we take for granted every day, whether it's our right to freedom of expression, right to privacy, um, right to religious freedom, all of these things um, enshrines that in the UK and protects all of us. And so it's incredibly staggering, really, and reckless and desperate to see the government trying to um, suggest that it would rip up um, these fundamental rights for what are essentially cheap political points.
2: So, I mean, they're talking about the Rwanda scheme, what, what's happened legally with Rwanda in terms of the, as people may know, this agreement with Rwanda, which is ruled by a regime, which doesn't abide by human rights, um, to have a blanket deportation of everyone who arrives by small boats to Rwanda. Just to to explain, what's the kind of legal position as things stand with that whole scheme?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So the Rwanda scheme um, being, you know, as cruel and fundamentally unworkable as it is, I think first really um, attracted kind of government anger and ire, um, especially when, Essentially, the European Court of Human Rights, which is in charge of enforcing the European Convention on Human Rights, again, separate to the EU, um, issued what is called an interim order to stop the first Rwanda flights from happening, um, because essentially it would have caused irreversible harm um, to people who would have been scheduled to be on that flight. Um, And Many people may remember that that was quite a dramatic moment and it was a combination of legal advocacy and direct action that ended up ensuring that no one was on that first flight to Rwanda. Um, and most recently, the Court of Appeal has um, vindicated the uh, campaigners who fought against that, who are fighting against that plan. Obviously, it, it continues Um in asserting that Rwanda is not a safe country um, to remove people to because of human rights abuses that might happen to people um, there. And um, the government has decided to appeal that judgment. And so I think that the Supreme Court will be um, considering it later in the fall. Um, but I think fundamentally, the uh, where why the conversation has become um, so toxic is basically this um, targeting of refugees and migrants' rights um, as a way to, well, in and of itself, because, uh, because that is, as you said in the introduction, um, one way to uh, restrict everyone's rights, to basically target the rights of a minority to begin with. Um, but it's now become also this wider thing about whether or not we should stay in the ECHR, which, again, protects everyone's rights and is much wider than just, um, you know, this particular issue.
2: And, I mean, in terms of what's the legality, is it possible to just withdraw, and what kind of company would that leave us with?
4: I mean, it it is possible to withdraw. Um, I think my hesitation with saying that is that it would truly be unfathomable, um, at least, uh, and it, you know you know, one thing I often talk about with my colleagues is that the Overton window about the acceptability of um, even talking about withdrawing has really shifted in the last, you know, I would even say, half a year, year, Um, you know, I was just looking back and in October of last year, um, the Home Secretary Suella Braverman was chastised by the government for basically saying that it's her personal view um, that we should leave the ECHR. She said this at Conservative Party Conference. But um, in recent months, we've really seen an escalation in the government adopting an increasingly hard line on the ECHR, um, which is, again, incredibly dangerous because the ECHR is the foundation of all of our human rights protections in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and to 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 kind of bandy around the idea that we could leave it uh, is something that, you know, none of us should be, none of us should accept. And indeed, many people within the Conservative Party itself um, disagree with it from all stripes, whether it's um, Bob Neill or Robert Buckland, Jackie Doyle Price, Richard Graham, David Simmons, all these people are very different in terms of their, um, you know, ideological positions and what have you. But, you know, most people agree it's a bad idea to leave leave this essential um, human rights instrument.
2: I mean, when Conservatives and those on the right say that it's a threat to British sovereignty and that we could devise our own systems, what would you you say to that? Quality
3: sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualise your comfort, so you sleep better together.
4: Well, I think the first thing I would say is that, um, again, to kind of harken back to the history of the ECHR being a fundamentally British invention, that we actually had a massive role to play in designing it and being an architect of it, and we're much more powerful uh, within it than we are without, because while we are in the European court, and within the jurisdiction of the European court and within um, a signatory to the ECHR. um, Our courts, our judges, our legal system can have a positive impact on the development of rights um, across the countries of the Council of Europe. If we leave the ECHR, um, we join the likes of Belarus and Russia, which you know, some people say is um, hyperbolic or exaggerated. But I think it's really important to also say that in abandoning our obligations and in abandoning something that we were so integral to creating, we're actually setting an incredibly dangerous precedent in the wider world of countries just um, abnegating any responsibility um, for human rights, uh, domestically as well as internationally. And we're already taking steps towards this and the Illegal Migration Act that was most recently passed um, was part of that. But, you know, even noises of leaving the ECHR would deal a death blow to our ability, our international reputation and also our credibility when speaking about human rights abuses abroad.
2: I mean, in, in, in terms of our international legal um responsibilities at the moment in terms of migrants and refugees, where would you say that we currently stand, legally speaking?
4: I mean, you know, I I mentioned the Illegal Migration Act that's just passed. Mm. Um, Now, I think the first thing to say that, you know, some people may not know is that the government itself acknowledged that the um, Act uh, is likely incompatible um, or it could not confirm that it wasn't incompatible with the European Convention on Human Rights. And it did this explicitly and in quite, it does so very rarely. And this was the rare occasion in which it did. Um, and so it itself acknowledges that the act uh, doesn't comply with international law. Um, the UN uh, UNHCR, so the UN High Commissioner on Refugees in Charge of Refugee Policy Internationally, have said that the act effectively extinguishes the right to asylum um, in the UK, apart from for a very small number of people. Mm. And more than that, you know, it overturns um, judicial precedent in terms of how long people can be detained. It uh, enables the detention of children, and, um, It, you know, it it introduces um, a massive expansion of the detention regime. It allows ministers to um, basically decide to ignore judgments of the European court um, or interim measures of the European court. And, you know, all of these things are in this incredibly noxious piece of legislation that um, passed in a matter of months even though it has such an unprecedented impact on the rule of law and international obligations. Um, And it really, you know, it's hard to describe just how how dangerous it is and how how worrying a precedent it sets. I think crucially, I'll just end with the fact that it does something that no other piece of legislation um, has done which is also to disapply a key section of the Human Rights Act, which protects all of us, specifically to the people and the, the people to whom it applies. Um, and I think that's incredibly worrying. And I think, yeah, um, someone in the comments has just said uh, a key thing that I missed out, which is also, um, you know, Northern Irish organizations have also warned about the Illegal Migration Act, mm. that any attempt to undermine the UK's adherence to its obligations under the ECHR fundamentally endanger the Good Friday Agreement because the ECHR is baked into it and mm. thus also endangers peace um, in Northern Ireland in quite a, a serious way.
2: And that, that was a comment from from Tad Campwell. Um, another question from David Bowater who asked, the UK Parliament already lacks much of the way of checks and balances. Without the European Court, European Court of Human Rights, wouldn't that leave us with a Parliament with absolute power? How scared... Should we uh, minorities be? I mean, people sometimes talk about Britain as having an elected dictatorship, where you get a concentration of power in the executive. So, yeah, for those, for example, members of minorities, Deborah Watt, I know from um, an LGBT from the LGBTQ uh, community. What you know, how worrying is that from that kind of perspective?
4: I think what we've seen in the past few years is a systematic shutting down of accountability of government, whether that's. In the streets, through the Police Crime Sensing and Courts Act and the Public Order Act, to introducing voter ID in the Elections Act, to uh, limiting judicial review in the Judicial Review Judicial Review and Courts Act, to clamping down on the right to strike through the Strikes Act, uh, Strikes Act, um, and many, many more. I could list them if I remembered them, um, and all of that, in addition to the kind of Main uh, one of the main centerpieces, which is the Bill of Rights Bill or Rights Removal Bill, which would have repealed the Human Rights Act, um, which was abandoned, but would have, you know, set us further on this course of um, erosion of our human rights protections. Plus, these threats to take us out of the ECHR and the Illegal Migration Act, and all of this. It all is tied together by a thread of fundamental evasion of accountability and also taking away the power of ordinary people to stand up to power. Um, And obviously, it's the people who already in society are marginalized, who lack access to justice, who will feel, um, who will be most sharply affected. Um, And so I think it is something that we should all Um, be incredibly worried about and um, mobilise against because either all of us have human rights or none of us do Um, and yeah it's something that we have an opportunity now to really build an opposition to and um, we need to do that together.
2: In fact that was just the final point I just wanted to put to you actually which was I guess this idea of the thin end of the wedge. I mean look obviously I support the rights of Refugees and migrants in themselves. I suppose the other point is that how vulnerable and demonised minorities that when their rights are assaulted, that can actually lead to the erosion of rights for people far beyond those who are specifically targeted and demonised.
4: I think that's absolutely right, and that has absolutely been the the approach of government. Um, we've seen this kind of death by a thousand cuts approach, whereby the government targets. A very specific group, um, whether that's migrants, including refugees, uh, whether that's people in prison, um, whether that's people who are criminalized. And, you know, essentially target these groups, minoritized, marginalized groups for specific erosions of rights that actually fundamentally undermine the entire framework. Um, And indeed, these kind of noises to leave the ECHR being um, projected through this prism of you know, quote unquote, stopping the boats, um, is a really, uh, it it really demonstrates that that's the logic that the UK would, the government wants to take us out of a human rights protection, human rights protections that, um, you know, are the fount of our human rights in this country in order to pursue this fundamentally cruel, unjust, um, universally well widely condemned policy um that violates our international obligations essentially for what seems to be kind of you know electoral or just kind of politicized reasons without any kind of evidence or grounding or indeed any acknowledgement of the serious impact that that could have and indeed it's already having an impact um in terms of uh, the rhetoric, you know, creating a sense of unease and and fear amongst people. Um, And it really is something that we need to be really wary of and and concerned about moving forward. Because as you say, obviously, we have a duty to be in solidarity with those groups most affected. including migrants, um, including, I see in the comments, trans people, people Mm. who are targeted out for specific erosions of their rights. But more broadly, there is a amount of feeling that, you know, eventually if we leave the ECHR, we're all affected. Hence Mm. why, you know, as I said, either all of us has human rights or none of us do.
2: Grace of June and really, really clear. And um, I think really goes into just the wider implications of what's happening here in quite a disturbing way. Liberty just do fantastic work. Um, I've relied several times in columns, media appearances, on the brilliant work and research uh, that you all do. So thank you so, so much for joining us and just very clearly detailing the threat and and what it represents. Thank you so much.
4: Thank you so much.
2: Take care. See you in a bit. Bye-bye. Bye. Um, great stuff there from June. Now, um, just what I might do is just talk a bit about the Conservatives more generally in terms of just where they are with the polling. Um, I could just see there, quickly, FSM the dog. First they came from migrants, then trans, then... Yeah, I mean, look, clearly what the Conservatives are doing is going after various minorities. Trans people are at the front line of this. They've clearly, as well as migrants and refugees, focused on um, one of the most marginalised communities in the country, trans people. I, I think it is worth noting some of the overlap in some of the way that trans people and migrants and refugees are demonised, because you often get this idea of them being um, sexual predators, violent threats. It, I mean, there it, it really are often overlaps throughout history. It was, it has been the case that you get a false appropriation of of, of the rights of women who face pandemic male violence, male violence. You know, we're talking about 1.4 million women who face domestic violence a year, 400,000 women who were sexually assaulted, 85,000 to to 90,000 women who were raped a year. Um, And we've seen how campaigns against migrants and refugees, and we've seen some of these protests recently, a few months ago, um, focused on the idea of, um, and this was also how um, black people in the American South were targeted, this is for the rhetoric of the KKK, um, to use the very real crisis of male violence against women and girls to focus on, for example, refugees and migrants and or black people in the US South. And that's also happening with trans people. You can just see some of the connections there. And I think it is worth um, stating that. Um, what I am going to do now is just actually just talk about the conservative. Oh, sorry. I should say to the other comments, thank you everyone for the birthday wishes. Yes, I did turn 23 yesterday. I'm 39 Um I, I know some of you hilariously saying happy 40th birthday. You've got a year until you can force it. You know. Oh, what happened? It is funny as you get older, like certain cliches, like life's too short, then you realise, oh, it is pretty short, actually. <laughs> I mean, it's just odd. I, mean, I remember hearing people when they were 40 going like, wow. You know, like, it feels like I was only 25 yesterday. It doesn't seem that long ago that I was 25. That's all I'm saying. Um, and I remember just the idea of being 40 in my head is just cemented as, like, those are old people. Anyway, you don't need to hear that. Um, it's funny as well, because I, I spent years, people patronising me about my, oh, he's so young, how young, you know, in order to not listen to what I was saying. Um, and now, particularly, as you talk about anti-trans people, they're all going middle-aged Owen Jones, middle-aged Owen Jones. I didn't get the bit in the middle I was too young and now I'm too old. What happens at the middle bit? Well, I was just the right age. Anyway, um, it's not that interesting, is it? I just thought I'd just share it with you. Let's just look at this. So Channel 4 did a report on the polling um, situation Uh, facing the Conservative Party, which is pretty
1: bad. So let's just have a listen. Well, it says that the Conservatives at the moment are facing a bit of a catastrophe. So this is polling given exclusively to Channel 4 News by pollsters at Find Out Now and Electoral Calculus. And it was conducted between the 31st of July and the 4th of August last Friday. So it takes into consideration all the noise and publicity about ULES and North Sea drilling and all things, by the way, that the Conservatives, there was a feeling that they were hoping to capitalise on. Looking at these numbers, they will not be happy. So 11,000 people were polled. What they said, if there was an election right now, 24% of voters would back the Conservatives. 46% would back Labour. Conservatives would see their vote share down by 21%, Labour up 13%. The big question, of course, then, what does that mean for the shape of Parliament? Well, that means the Conservatives will be down to fewer than one hundred seats, just ninety. Labour would have a landslide, a majority, four hundred and sixty-one seats. You'd also see a resurgence of the Lib Dems, them fighting with the SNP for second place. You'd also see a few big names lose their seats, notably even the Prime Minister and a few members of of his cabinet. Now, look, all the usual caveats apply. It's a poll; things change. You know, there's still possibly a year until the election. However, whichever way you look at these numbers, they are bad for the government. Not.
2: Yeah, not great for the Conservatives. Let's be honest with you. Um, yeah, they're facing a terrible defeat. I think, as things stand, and I think obviously what we're looking at in terms of the assault on refugees and migrants and there's cultural attacks, for example, on trans people, that's what's happening. They think if they keep pressing a big red button, whip up bigotry against marginalized minorities, uh, cause a moral panic about trans people, then maybe they'll reconsolidate um, their base. As I've said, I do you think the Stop the Boats so-called campaign is a big, big error on their part. They're not going to stop the boats. I mean, they've shut down legal and safe routes. Rwanda is not, you know, that whole heinous scheme is not going to deter people from coming here so they're going to end up going into the next election with people still arriving like even if only 10 people a day were arriving or a week that would still constitute boats arriving do you see what i mean it doesn't matter even if they if the number decreased because actually you could say the numbers have decreased this year slightly because of bad weather but that they don't get any political dividends from that they they haven't thought it through is all them saying if you're going to whip up a campaign of bigotry and hatred and fear against migrants and refugees do it competently don't pick an issue where you cannot solve a, a what you've made into a crisis you've met you've, you've given all this red meat to the conservatives you've riled up your own voters about it you've caught you've inflamed their own passions and then they go well are you going to solve it? and you can't do it i mean it was a it, it's utter political ineptitude on the part of the Conservatives. And I think it is worth pointing out, as well as it being obviously immoral and a general all-round disgrace. So I think, I mean, I do think myself, in terms of what's happened with the Conservatives, I do think obviously the cost of living crisis is a massive part of what's happened. The fact they've got through two prime ministers, one uh, resigned because of illegality, I mean, the biggest scandal involving a government in democratic uh, history, really. But I do think, for me, I think history will judge that the moment that the consensus really couldn't claw things back, because a large section of the electorate decided at that moment, it doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter what you promise us, we've made up our mind and we're going to kick you out, was the Liz Truss experiment. I mean, what happened there is the Conservatives got rid of Boris Johnson when they were only actually seven points behind in polling, which is recoverable. And if they were going to commit regicide, then they should have had somebody lined up who had popular appeal. Instead, what they did is put someone there who supports economic policies, hard right libertarian policies, which about 5% of the electorate support, slashing taxes on the rich, basically big tax giveaways, Uh, to already extremely rich people during a cost of living crisis um, who was a terrible political communicator and just a terrible politician. And what happened then when that caused an economic crisis? So they offered a series of policies which were terrible because people rejected them. So they were unpopular policies. We're going to hand loads of tax, uh, free tax giveaways to the rich. And the consequence of that was to send mortgages going up and to cause an economic crisis. That's the moment when people just decided, we've had enough. We're getting rid of you. It doesn't matter what you do. And I think that's the problem Rishi Sunak faces. You know, that's what happened with Black uh, um, Wednesday under um, John Major and Norman Lamont. Just at that point, people just decided, it doesn't matter what you do. So, you know, my view on that, as you probably know, is the Conservatives are going to lose the election almost certainly by default, and Labour are going to win, not on their own merits, because... um, Labour aren't offering a inspiring alternative, clearly, uh, or a clear vision whatsoever for the country. But I think it's very clear that 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 was the end for them. They will call back some of the polling. I think it's very likely because a lot of the, uh, well, sorry, a significant amount of the um, Labour lead is down to Tories going, uh, Tory voters, people who voted Tory in twenty nineteen, going to don't know. Also, I've seen polls with reform on 10%, reform and not on 10%. So a significant number of those are going to go back to the Conservatives, I would say. But I just think the Tories are too way too behind now at this point of the electoral cycle. I mean, it's said that an election pencilled in for November. Um, I just don't see how it's plausible how the Conservatives could win a majority. Bear in mind now, they, they don't really have other um, uh, political, they don't have coalition partners. Uh, Kieran Buckley says, Labour might win the next election but they will do nothing, then we're likely to be back under the 20 plus years of Tories we just can't win, hold on, my cat Kia has a obsession with eating sellotape, I need to stop him doing that because of the work, once he got hospitalised one second, he's here Kia, come on come on there we go this is a very naughty puss, aren't you? Um, yeah, he wants, he, um, no, no, no. Uh, he once ate um, cellophane. He we inhaled it. And uh, we had to give him a general aesthetic. You just say, no, you just stay here for now. Okay, I think we'll probably come to the end. need to look after him, don't I? Um, thanks, everyone, for joining and we will keep doing these um, as well as our daily videos. I have been away a lot recently. I've been Germany and stuff. So we've done fewer videos, but you can see at the moment, I'm trying to make up for it. I've been doing like two videos a day. Um, so we will keep doing that. Uh, thank you everyone for joining. Thanks for saying happy birthday, very sweet of you. Oh, hello. Um, and we're gonna be doing some uh, interviews as well. Um, which we've got lined up and approaching some very interesting people off the back of suggestions, which people got on Patreon.com for, for. We've already started planning. Now we've submitted our applications for labor party conference. We're doing a video there as we always do. And for conservative party conference, which I am actually very much looking forward to. Uh, I don't know if you saw our, uh, our video at Conservative party conference last year. Um, always has a lot of fans. Uh, hopefully this year won't be any different. I'm sure we'll have even more fun. Um, because this, you know, the election is now approaching. The Conservatives are in increasingly desperate state, so it'll be very interesting to talk then. Uh, someone says, another troublesome care. Yeah, but, you know, my, at least my kids, at least my cat's got charisma. That's all I'm saying. Um, great stuff, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us. And uh, press like and subscribe. Um, and we've also got our podcast. This will go on the podcast. If you're listening in the podcast, hello, you are valued and loved. Um, Great. All right, everyone, take care. Oh, so, what the hell am I doing? I've not said good. Sorry, I just got a very angry message there. Um, thank you on the Super Chat, to Bob Bold, FSM is the dog, Graham Meacham, State Daft, Tad Campwell, David Bowater, FSM is the dog, and Kieran Buckley. And thank you to our brilliant guests um, as well um, for their insight, as ever. And do support uh, both of those organizations. They do great stuff. All right, lots of love. Speak to you. Take care, Bye.